0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diyadamsu Longcomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Ross Ken to talk about his book, Syncretism and Christian Tradition, Race and Revelation in the Study of Religious Mixture. I think personally, the title itself, the title of the book itself is very attractive to, to me. In that sense, um, I'm also working on uh, religious syncretism, and I'm also propounding for the use of the word uh, syncretism, and also I'm dabbling in the very conceptual framework of trying to understand uh, what religious syncretism is and uh, how do we understand, how do we use it in terms of trying to understand religion and the mixture of religions in that sense. So I think this book for me has been a very attractive book from the title itself, and also when I delve into the contents of the book, I think it really attracted me in the sense of how the historical narrative about the use of as uh, the word syncretism and in its use in theology, religious studies, and anthropology has been portrayed in the book. And that, that is where I think today I'm here with the author himself, uh, Dr. Rose Ken, to talk about this book, Syncretism and Christian Tradition. So let me go straight uh, to the author himself. So uh, Dr. Ken, can you tell me something about yourself? Yeah. Certainly. Thank you. And I'm delighted to be
0: on this podcast and to talk about this book. So my name is Ross Kane, and I'm a professor, assistant professor of theology, ethics, and culture at Virginia Theological Seminary, which is a graduate school just outside of Washington, D.C. And the, my own areas of research cover religion and culture, Christian theology, and African Christianity. And it was in the intersection of these areas that brought me to explore this peculiar word in theology and religious studies, syncretism, since it's used in various disciplines, but used in very, very different ways.
1: And um, since your background, as you have said, is also on religious studies and also you know, you have dealt on, uh, you know, the African traditions of uh, Christianity and all of those aspects. So uh, how did this uh, book come up, came about in terms of uh, trying to analyze and understand syncretism? Yeah.
0: Well, let me start at a conceptual level and then speak at a more personal level. Conceptually, the book started with contrasting uses of the term syncretism. In my own doctoral program, we had many different, areas of religious studies represented. And so we had anthropologists and historians, and then we had Christian theologians. And I was reading literature that used syncretism in, in very, very different ways. And it, it seemed to me that there was, um, there could be some work done here in bringing some conceptual clarity to the term syncretism. And especially within Christian theology, it seemed to me there was quite a bit more nuance within the religious studies literature written by outsiders. And so that was the beginning. I, I, I noticed how for some th- what some theologians would call enculturation, uh, an anthropologist would call syncretism. But a theologian would never call it syncretism. So so I, I wanted to explore that question a little bit more. But before that, it really began within my own experiences. I was born and raised in the United States, in the state of Virginia. And I After I graduated from university, I lived overseas for a number of years in East Africa and was involved with some efforts by church groups and civil society in reconciliation between warring Southern Sudanese groups. And uh, I saw churches using all sorts of indigenous practices as part and parcel of their peacemaking so in the sixth chapter of the book, I describe a bull sacrifice ritual carried out in South Sudan. And I, I experienced those when I was living in South Sudan and, and experienced Christian bishops opening this bull ritual with prayer and Christian songs being offered. But as someone who was born and raised in the United States, this was something completely different for me. And when I described the experience to uh, to theologians in my um graduate school they they just sort of dismissively called it syncretism and it seemed to me there's more to say about it than 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 that
1: yeah i think uh, the blend of your experience itself and then your academic expertise uh, that comes together in bringing this book is something which is quite interesting and it mm-hmm. makes the book somehow again at the same time very interesting and also at the same time conceptually very in depth in that sense. So let's go into the contents of the book and then uh, go one question after the another or one chapter after the another and then let's just explore the book itself. So first of all, uh, give us a glimpse of the history of the word syncretism of its usage and of its origin, yeah.
0: Sure. The use of the word goes back many centuries. The first use that we have in written literature is from Plutarch, and he used the word when talking about Uh, Greeks in Crete who were able to overcome their own quarrels when they had to face a common enemy. And this is actually the origin of the word syncretism. It's the the Crete in the middle is a reference to the Cretans. And and in this sense, syncretism simply meant reconciling factions. And this was the association of the term for many, many centuries to follow. In the European Reformation, uh, the term was used extensively as uh, reference to theologians who were trying to bring different church parties together amid the fractions of the European Reformation. So Erasmus used the term, Zwingli and Calvin all used the term again for uh, coalition building or reconciling factions. And then in the 17th century, uh, a caustic connotation came into the word through a fierce Lutheran debate called the syncretism controversy, which you might talk about a little bit more later. And, um, but that in, in, in that controversy there was there became significant debate within the Protestant Church uh, questioning the kind of coalition building that folks like Erasmus and, and, and others were carrying out. and, and they started to, to use the term in, in a very negative sense. And then really in the 18th and 19th centuries, it, the use of the term really moves between, the one use of reconciling factions and the other use of questioning mixture you have politicians in 19th century europe using the word syncretism uh, for nation building a means of bringing many different constituencies and a body politic together into a single nation you have philosophers using the word in a similarly uh positive sense like um uh, Herder, for example, used, used the word fairly frequently, but you also have philosophers who used syncretism in in a more negative way, saying that uh, syncretism was an example when a school of philosophy would bring too many different ideas together, leading to incoherence instead of clarity. So the use was kind of all over the place, frankly, in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was really in the late 19th and early 20th century when the term settles into the realm of religion. And there it really takes two associations. First, it's a kind of neutral descriptor. Religious studies is a very early field at this point, but in the late 19th century, religious historians begin using the word syncretism to describe the ways that, say, Christianity would blend with Greek culture or Islam would blend with uh, Arabic culture. And then it was in the early 20th century in Christian theology when it started to take a, a negative connotation and became something more like an insult. So really kind of across the history here, I and mean, we've got you know, 2,000 years or 1,800 years of use of syncretism in these very different senses, but there's you can basically break it down into four. You have uh, syncretism as reconciling factions, so that's Erasmus, and that's Uh, Plutarch and others you have syncretism as questioning mixture so you have that in the syncretism controversy and among philosophers who think that syncretism leads to incoherence third you have a neutral descriptor Uh, syncretism is just describing phenomena in the world without offering a judgment on it and that's in religious studies and then uh, lastly fourthly you have syncretism as as an epithet or as an insult in Christian theology
1: yeah, I mean, the broad stroke of how syncretism has been used is something uh, quite interesting and tells a lot about the word itself and, you know, the disciplinary boundaries that it has crossed and how it has been used. And that's quite interesting. So. Um, let us go one by one. And firstly, I want to focus on the Christian use of the word syncretism. And as you have said, in the 17th century, there was a debate. And in the 20th century, in the Christian circle, it has been used use as something uh, we, where you know, chalk out the other other from the very Christian domain or the Christian boundary, something like that. So um, in a sense, it became a pejorative word, right? So tell us something about the history of the debate in, the, in terms of the word syncretism in the theological or the Christian theological usage, yeah.
0: Hmm. Sure. Yeah. There's there's really three things that come together to make the word syncretism become pejorative in Christian theology. So the first is that syncretism controversy. The second is a worry about revelation, a concern that God's revelation for theologians uh, be as as clear as it can possibly be. And then the third aspect is racism. So. The syncretism controversy that we just mentioned in the 17th century, in my experience, uh, Christian theology doesn't talk a lot about this controversy today, but it was a very fierce and well-known controversy in its own time. Basically pitted two significant Lutheran theologians against one another. One was named Calixus. And Calixus was trying to advocate a very broad expression of Christianity, a kind of big tent Christianity that could, in fact, reconcile Lutherans, Reformed churches, and Catholics. He was desiring Christian unity after the difficulties of not just the Reformation, but he lived also through the Thirty Years' War, which was, of course, uh, a time of great religious upheaval and religious conflict. Now, there were others in the Lutheran Church who were not so excited about uh, this kind of broad expression of Christianity. Uh, they thought the Reformation was at stake, that uh, there, there was uh, Christianity should be as uh, defined as it can possibly be. And so that meant a fairly narrow expression of Christian theology. And that camp was, was led by a theologian named Colovius. It was a time of, of uh, great in, invective in the church. Uh, this, this debate was not kind. Uh, Colovius, for example, called Calixus's work the excrements of Satan. And, and, and so it, it was Colovius who added this caustic sense to the term. Um, and what's at stake here for these two theologians is you know, what Christian theology is often called the rule of faith. Um, you know, what are those aspects of the faith that are seen as, as essential, and what are those where there can be disagreement? And they disagreed fiercely about that. So that, that added the caustic sense to the term. Now, more recently, though, it wasn't until the late 19th, really twentieth, early 20th century that syncretism became fully pejorative in Christian theology. So the first concern there uh, was about revelation. This was a concern about the purity of the Christian message. By the 19th and early 20th centuries, Christianity had been spreading rapidly across the world and would continue to do so throughout the 20th century. And amid that expansion, there were many different cultural expressions of christianity in various parts of the world and many especially european missionaries and theologians were concerned about the purity of christianity they wanted to see that the the revelation of god in christ can be expressed in as clear a way as possible and 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 in a way that doesn't uh that isn't unduly influenced by culture now what ended up happening was that all of those expressions of Christianity that were considered syncretism, which was, you know, undue mixture uh, with uh, surrounding cultures or other religions, almost all of the um, named syncretisms in the early 20th century for European Christian theologians were from Africa, from Latin America, and from Asia. And so, Clearly, there, 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 there is some racism that gets embedded within the term, because at this point, discourses about syncretism are getting mixed up in wider discourses about racism. Again, during this period, this is a new height of racism in Europe and North America. You have the eugenics movements in, in, in both of those continents. And, and so syncretism just got caught up, caught up in those intellectual waters. It's not like missiologists and theologians were saying, oh, all non-white expressions of Christianity are syncretism. It's, it's how they use the term. So you rarely, if ever, I I spent years researching this, I could, I could almost never find an instance where a European theologian would call European theology syncretism. It was all, almost always reserved for Africa, Latin America, and Asian forms of Christianity. So those three things really come together to make the word pejorative. You have the syncretism controversy, which gave that caustic sense to the term. You have this concern about the purity of Christianity and the Christian message and God's revelation being being pure. And then you have syncretism getting caught up in these wider discourses about racism, where pure Christianity, sort of unalloyed Christianity, ends up becoming white European Christianity.
1: Yeah, and I think... Um, that's quite interesting because now also even till today the word syncretism by Christian theologians or Christians um, they use this one in a very negative sense and I've also personally encountered those aspects and also at the same time uh, recently I was having a uh, conversation with a professor and he was also kind of pointing out that you know the use of syncretism has been uh, negative in the sense of it has been used by the European missionaries and also uh, we should avoid kind of using the word syncretism and all but then I had different opinions on that but that's quite interesting as to how you have brought out and how how you have have seen the very aspect of syncretism in Christian theology and how it has grown. I mean, you have shown the history, right, of how this has grown, the word has been used. Also, at the same time, uh, as the subtitle of the book, your book suggests that how race has been intermingled with the use of the word syncretism in that sense. So I think... That is where I think the aspect of where is uh, separate between the, the the Asian Christianity or the Asian religion or Eastern religions, and then you know uh, looking at the European Christianity as somewhat, somehow which is very pure in a sense, has something uh, that has uh, to do with how syncretism has been used. So I think that aspect of uh, the usage of syncretism in Christianity itself is something quite interesting that you have brought out in your work. So let's go to the second aspect, and I think uh, I'd I'll, I'll like you to ask about this one, where, you know, the use of syncretism in religious studies and anthropology, actually. So s- since um, I come from uh, antro- uh, the anthropological study of religion, um, I mean, syncretism is something which is uh, used, uh, not in a negative sense, but in religious studies, anthropology is used in a very, quite decent sense. In this. And and in anthropology, recently, there has been some debates about the very usage of the conceptual framework of syncretism itself. And in religious studies, this uh, word is also used. So, so how, how is this word being used? used and develop in the in the area of religious studies and anthropology. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. It, it it's used in a fairly neutral sense. It's used as a description of observed phenomena. And uh, for me as someone who works sort of in both religious studies and anthropology as well as Christian theology it was the kind of dissonance between these uses of the term that that was so striking. So there's really basic two senses um, within religious studies and anthropology. You have syncretism as a neutral descriptor, um, and that's especially within religious studies. And one of the key insights that religious studies scholars provide is that syncretism is simply pervasive in religion. There is no way for a religious tradition to avoid, syncretism, that humans will always be expressing religion within a cultural environment and that cultural environment has shaped all humans. <laughs> our cultures have shaped us all in ways that we, we cannot avoid um, and, and shouldn't seek to avoid. Um, but that there's, there, there is a, there, there can't be a, a kind of pure uncultured uh, religion. So for religious studies scholars, it's simply a universal phenomenon within religions. Now, this was this is isn't something that religious scholars um, recognized from the beginning it was something that it was an insight that grew really kind of from the early mid 20th century uh, there was a time in religious studies when um, scholars tended to view religions as fairly freestanding entities um, that didn't syncretize unless some sort of Cultural phenomenon or political phenomenon like um, conquest or something would, would press the matter. Um, religious scholars in the mid 20th century started to revise that assessment and, and recognize what well, no religious traditions are always mixing with whatever is around them, even those who, um, even when they're not encountering uh, one another. So that's that first sense that, 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 that neutral descriptor. Um, And then anthropology, uh, it's used as a descriptor, but sometimes has a celebratory tone to it as well. Um, You know, uh, many anthropologists uh, wanted to highlight the creativity at play when people adapt especially uh, large religious traditions like Christianity and Islam to their own cultural context and their own environment. For anthropologists, this was not necessarily an act of betraying a tradition as it was for many theologians. It was rather um, an act of, of, of great creativity and an and expression of agency and often a means of um, fighting against some of the imperial aspects of traditions like Christianity and Islam. So uh, for me, that that, that tension uh, between syncretism as an inevitable phenomena in any religious tradition and Christian theologians who are trying to to hold on to an unsyncretized Christianity uh, became, like I said, one of the guiding forces <laughs> behind writing this book. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think the. Line that you have said about syncretism being an unavoidable phenomena is something uh, which is uh, true in that sense. I mean, it, syncretism happens um, in terms of how religions meet and come together, and you know, um, and cultures and traditions come together, and that is quite interesting as to how religious. Uh, the word syncretism has been used in uh, religious studies and how it has developed and, uh, and how it is today, and also its usage in anthropology itself. So by your work and by the tone of how you are describing syncretism itself, you advocate for the retention of the usage of the word syncretism with some caveat, right? With some understanding the certain aspect of syncretism with some caveat, but also you talk about tradition, how, you know, the syncretism can be understood uh, through the usage of the tradition and, you know, how syncretism can be, uh, can be used in certain ways. So how do you understand syncretism in terms of tradition and how do we use syncretism in that sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: Yeah, th- there's been significant debate in religious studies about whether scholars should even keep using the word syncretism. And and you know, there's been a few arguments against it. Uh, one argument is that syncretism could assume an essentialism in religion that overlooks the fluidity of any religious tradition. Um, these are descriptions of syncretism in which you would have one freestanding religious tradition encountering another and then syncretism ensues. And religious studies scholars would say, no, syncretism's actually always been there. So uh, you know, there's that worry about essentializing religion. The second worry is that if it is a universal phenomenon in religion, uh, why should we bother to delineate it? It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> and so what's, what's the point? Um, and then the third worry is that, uh, the term, the pejorative use of the term in Christian theology is just too ingrained in, 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 the work. Now I think that each of these concerns can be addressed. I think in terms of the first concern about essentialism, I don't think syncretism needs to assume essentialism within a religious tradition. I think it would assume continuity within a religious tradition, but, um, you can have traditions that are always undergoing change that encounter one another and syncretism is kind of the best word out there for describing what's happening we don't really have a better one yet if we did you know i'm certainly open to revising my my opinion um the second concern that it's because it's universal it shouldn't be used i i i don't find that persuasive because there's all sorts of words that have that problem and we keep using them. We have words like society and politics, and religion itself, for that matter. <laughs> These are all words that refer to fairly widespread phenomena, but we use them because thats um, they still describe something that, that other words don't quite describe. And I think is in that category. In terms of this jar of history, uh, it seems to me that anthropologists have uh, given us a way through here, that anthropologists have shown that that the negative connotation of, of, of the word can be turned, can be turned on its head in you know, what Foucault would call a kind of reverse discourse, that um, it's, its negative associations can actually be harnessed for, uh, for, 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 for some moral good, which is empowering those who have been insulted uh, from having been called um, syncretists. And you, you, you mentioned my use of the word uh, tradition here, and it, it really is a, a vital um, concept in the book because I, I think that for religious studies scholars, anthropologists, histor- um, theologians, if we are going to recognize that syncretism is pervasive, and we have to have some way of making sense of our tradition, of our, you know, what's often called religions, um, even, the, you know, and that's a controversial term now as well. Um, we have to have some way of describing them that accounts for the constant fluidity and flux of syncretism. Now, there can be constant syncretism, but there can also be continuity. And I I just haven't found another word other than tradition that quite holds those things together. Now, the challenge here is that tradition is often used in a very stultified sense. Uh, But it's it's not traditionalism. It's, it's, It's tradition. And so I mean tradition in the sense of something, you know, it's original Latin origin, which is you to hand something on. Um, so so tradition as, as, as something that always involves handing on and adapting, but, but uh, alongside continuity.
1: Yeah. I think that's, an interesting way of how we can use the word syncretism and how the word can be written in the uh, you know scholarly discourse of uh, trying to understand religious traditions as such. So I think that is, is quite interesting. And I think the uh, last two chapters kind of delves into the theological aspect of it. And, you know, for me, I come from India, the Northeast India, and to my people, the the Southern Baptists, uh, the American Southern Baptists, brought Christianity to my people to, uh, almost two centuries ago. And I think. Christianity has something which is like culturally I come from that background and I've been really I really thought and I've been really I have really delved into the thinking processes of the historical and theological aspect of Christianity in that sense and that is uh, that is an area also I, which I'm very much interested in and so So coming to the next question here about uh, Christ, right? Jesus Christ, something which uh, all Christians in that sense think about and, you know, uh, in one way or the other delve about and, you know, uh, Christ is the center of Christianity in that sense. So how do we understand, uh, as the Christian theology portrays it, how do we understand Christ's humanity and divinity in terms of uh, syncretism here? Because I think you have brought out some discussion between two two theologians in this very book itself. Uh, And then you have kind of brought out the aspect of uh, Christ, humanity and divinity and how we can understand it through the usage of the syncretism. So how do we really understand this aspect of Christ? Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. And you're right. The the book sort of pivots uh, starting around the fifth chapter. So uh, the fifth and the sixth chapters really move directly into theological engagement with challenges of syncretism the the introduction in chapters one through four are really written for theologians and religious studies scholars alike so one can be an insider studying their own tradition Uh, one can be an outsider studying christian tradition and benefit from those first four chapters but the last two really get much more specific engaging christian theology like you say the question of jesus humanity and divinity is is a is a theme that 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 comes out across these final two chapters the first thing i'd say before even getting into Christ's divinity and humanity is that in christian theology we have to recognize that culture simply is part of human beings expressing theology and that's that's basic point that religious studies and anthropologists scholars um Point out, and 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 I don't think that we have grounds for disagreeing with that conclusion. And so, if that is, if if humans expressing um, theology through their culture is simply part and parcel of theology itself, then instead of bemoaning the variations that come from Christians in various parts of the world expressing Christianity, instead of looking for some kind of pure Christian message that could exist outside of culture, why don't we see culture as part of the giftedness of God's good creation, that it was part of God's intentions in this world to create difference and to allow that difference to speak to the presence of the divine um, within, within the world that God made. So that's a kind of basic orientation uh, that grounds the theological work. When when it comes to you know Christ's humanity and divinity, um, a major theme within this book, in terms of the person of Christ, is the the continuing incarnation of Christ across history through Christ's own body. So you have you have. Christ, as, you know, as, as Apostle Paul describes, Christ is the head of the body. So you have Christ as the head. But then uh, as more and more people are baptized into Christian tradition, Christ's body over history, in a sense, is growing because more and more people are being brought into it. And it's, it's, it's that growing body across time that I emphasize um, in terms of Christ's humanity that Christ's humanity is not just the humanity of the first century uh, Jewish prophet and rabbi, but Christ's humanity is the body of Christ that we are incorporated into, that we as humans bring our bodies into Christ's body, and Christ's body reflects the diversity of humanity. So the idea is that more and more um, cultures uh, come, come to shape Christ's body, And that this is nothing to be worried about. In fact, it's something to be celebrated. And we find it across Christian tradition. So just take the example from the New Testament of parables. that That was a first century idiom for teaching that Jesus used across his ministry. And this simple idiom of parables became a means of God's revelation being expressed anew to human beings through the person of Christ. We jump ahead a couple of centuries, and then we have, uh, then we have Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, uh, being a means by which uh, Christians see more of Christ. And uh, one of the great examples that I talk about in the book is the use of the word homoousios, the Greek word, which in the Nicene Creed is translated of one being or of one substance. That Jesus is Christ is of one being with the Father. Homoousias is not a term from the Christian scriptures. In fact, uh, there was a council before the Nicene Council in Antioch in the third century, which uh, said that Homoousias should not be used when describing uh, the person of Christ. But then over time, uh, the word became retooled and Christian theologians began to see that 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 there was some great potential to this word, It was a word straight out of Greek philosophy and particularly um, from Gnostic sects of Christianity actually is where, where it originated. Um, but there again, so you have another moment in which a cultural uh, idiom has become a means of seeing more of Jesus through these, Uh, debates of the early church and then in the sixth chapter i give another example from the contemporary church there's a few examples but um i think the strongest is is um the role that ancestors play within african christianity and the way that african theologians and it's not exclusive to africa but that's my own area of research uh, ways in which african theologians um recognize the importance of ancestors, especially in the Old Testament, and, and bring that back into Christian theology because it's an area that Christian theology has not necessarily paid a great deal of attention to. So here again, you have this cultural idiom um, uh, and uh, we, have, we have Christianity being expressed within a cultural idiom um, and, and, and these cultures actually become ways of seeing more of Jesus ways that that the Spirit uses to to show uh, aspects of Jesus that we haven't necessarily seen. So syncretism actually becomes this means by which Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity uh, communicate with each other. That's quite
1: interesting, yeah. And also, you know, there is this, um, in page 182 and the editor of the book, um, there's this line that which I I was quite um, interested in intrigued with. And the line goes something like this, where it says, Revelation is knowledge of the divine forged in the crucible of the material history. Thus, divine revelation does not simply entail the teaching of doctrine, it enables a new future. Revelation is not mainly a doctrine, Allah says, but a promise. And I think that line itself of revelation itself of uh, is something which is quite interesting. I think to see the and know the idea of revelation and then look at revelation in that sense, right? And as you have said, uh, the, the the debate of syncretism in Christian theology has mostly to do with revelation in that sense. And I think how you like how you describe Christ's divinity in humanity and how we should understand it and also how we should understand it in terms of revelation of how you know the revelation of how it is described here. I think the readers will have to get the book and then try to go into the the, the kind of uh, things that have been discussed here on the aspect of Revelation and I'm sure the readers will really... um the benefit from the book itself so let's come to the last chapter and I think the last chapter itself is something like this, by the reading of it I, I kind of um, feel that you are giving a proposal or you are proposing something to the Christian theologians, so so when when Christians as Christians we come and contact with other traditions, um, you know there are certain aspect, aspects which we can syncretize but there are certain aspects which we cannot, um, you know, we can be careful of so I mean there is this kind of proposal and I think when I look at the uh, last chapter and when you talk about the veneration of the ancestors and all, you know, uh, since you are from uh, America and all the, the debate in, in America the theological circle, of the Christian theological circle, circle of debate between the conservative and the progressive is very high and when people read your last chapter I'm sure you will get some <laughs> comments from people from the other side but I think you um, the last chapter, in that sense, for me as an anthropologist and as a scholar of religion, I think this is something which I believe need to be uh, carried out and practiced in the theo- Christian theological circle itself, right? So how do you propose uh, the last chapter in the terms of usage of syncretism when Christian or Christianity coming in contact with other tradition? Hmm.
0: You know, that quote you gave um, is really... It, it, it's really based in the work of the Cameroonian theologian, Jean-Marc Ella, uh who's someone who talks quite a lot about ancestors. And, 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 and I just love that sense of revelation, like you say, as, as a promise, something that isn't, isn't sort of just given to us from the past. And all we have to do is repeat it. It's not a theology of repetition. Um, rather it's, it's, it, it's, if revelation is a promise, then, then there will be, we should expect innovation within the tradition. So, um, Ela is one major theological figure in the last two chapters, and then Rowan Williams is the other. In terms of uh, your, your, your question here, Ron Williams once made a distinction. I don't make a lot of this in the book, but it's a really nice summary of what the last chapter is trying to do. Ron Williams once made a distinction between a posture of authenticity as the Christian message spreads versus a posture of expectation. And he would say that for much of Christian mission history, there has been a posture of authenticity. And that is expressed in a concern that the core tenets of Christianity be handed down. But there hasn't necessarily been apt attention to the way in which that concern was expressed based on European <laughs> understandings of Christianity. And so that, often, that concern for authenticity has sometimes inhibited uh, this sense that God's revelation is not just something from the past, but is a promise to Christians for a new future—a posture of expectation. On the other hand, as Christianity spreads, um, it wouldn't be unconcerned about authenticity. That's 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 a concern for any tradition. Um, but a posture of expectation would. Um, when Christianity is expressed or when there's uh, in, in a new place or when one Christian experiences an expression of Christianity that's different from theirs, instead of starting with a worry about authenticity, what if we started with a sense of expectation that the Holy Spirit could be saying something new about Christianity that we've just n- not encountered before? And we could start there, <laughs> start with, with a sense of expectation and, and then go to the worry about authenticity. Um, But for most of modern Christian history, um, those have been reversed. And the last chapter is basically saying, well, what if we come um, thinking, what if we uh, encounter the unfamiliar with a posture of receptivity instead of defensiveness? And, um, you know, in the last chapter... I uh, go through a couple of examples. One is ancestor reverencing. The other is, is, is a bullsack rest ritual, the one I described earlier. And um, I go through those as, um, and give those as examples of um, new and coherent expressions of Christian tradition. And then I give some examples of um, uh, Christianity that, that seem beyond the bounds of tradition. And one is, um, because i work in african studies all the examples are african um so one is the example of Afrikaner nationalism which combined christianity with um an apart eventually an apartheid state um and and you know that can seem like too easy of an example at first but the idea is actually to say south africa is not an unusual example of christians combining nationalism with um racism and uh their their christian commitments um, this was part of much of uh, 20th century European history, much of uh, 19th, 20th century United States history. So the, the idea is not to sort of, you know, play tennis with a net down, if you will, but to, to say this example that's so vibrant for many um, for in, in, in the contemporary moment is actually much more uh, familiar than we might think. And then the other example is of... Um, a Christian group in Zimbabwe who do not hold the Bible to be revelatory. And, you know, as it's interesting, some of the feedback I've gotten about the book, um, you know, you mentioned that a lot of theologians might be a bit uh, concerned about examples like bull sacrifice and, um, and, and ancestor reverencing. I've also gotten feedback that um, I'm, too concerned about things like, um, the, the group in Zimbabwe that, um, you know, that, that, you know, theologians, uh, shouldn't see themselves as, as a judge and, and that perhaps I'm actually going against my own arguments by, by, uh, voicing concern about these, about these expressions. Um, but I, I see myself as part of the conversation there. I don't see myself as giving a final word, uh, by any means, but as trying to offer, a sort of guide for reflection as as the conversation continues within theology and religious studies about uh, syncretism and Christian tradition.
1: Yeah, and I think um, the... And the last chapter is a very good way to end the book itself in the sense of proposing a discussion, a ground for discussion, right? I think that is something quite interesting. And also, you know, this book itself is something like this where it can be read by theologians, uh, the religious studies scholar. You know, it can be read by anthropologists, sociologists, uh, anyone. And, you know, all can come together and try to uh, kind of clean from this book. And I think uh, the beauty in the sense of this book is here. uh, And I think uh, that's quite interesting of how you portray um, your, the understanding of syncretism and the history of it. So, is there anything that I've missed out in the question that you want to talk about or say something about the book? Yeah. <laughs> no, you've,
0: you've been an excellent reader, and I've really appreciated this conversation. It's It's been a wonderful opportunity to sort of look back on this project. Um, as for many scholars, it was a project that was many, many years in the making. It started as a paper for a class in graduate school, and turned into a dissertation, and has now been turned into a book. So it's 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 nice to see all these years of work <laughs> um, in a book that can be uh, appreciated by others. So this is this has really been been uh, terrific to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, that's really good. So you know, any other new projects that you're working on, or anything exciting coming ahead of you uh, in terms of your scholarly work?
0: Sure, sure. Um, I have two kind of small projects I'm working on right now. One is um, I'm co-editing with uh, the African ethicist Simeon Alesemi, uh, a reader in African political theologies, and that's been a really exciting project to be a part of. And I'm also just finishing up a very short text on um, political theology and Christian tradition with a with a with a a strong focus on local parishes and congregations. Uh, so those are smaller projects. The, the big project that I'm planning to work on next is a project that explores, uh, it, it really carries forward this this idea of Christ's incarnation continuing across history and um, exploring that idea and doing kind of something like an integrative survey of various um, expressions of Christ's body being manifested today in in, in different cultures and, and finding some resonances between different writers and offering that as a means of uh, giving just a different perspective into some classic uh, Christological questions in Western Christianity, especially questions about uh, a, con- a perceived contrast between a Jesus of history and a Christ of faith. Um, I mean one thing in the initial explorations i'm, I'm finding is, is 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 how cultural a question that is for western christians and that that this perceived divide between a jesus of history walking around ancient palestine and jesus as expressed across history um is a divide that's not shared in many other cultures in christianity and so um As Jean-Marc Elah, that Camarayan theologian I mentioned, said, uh, he said, sometimes if Western Christianity is to overcome its own contradictions, it has to draw from other wells. And so that next book is basically a project um, uh, based on Elah's insight.
1: Very interesting project ahead. The very expression of Christ in cultures, right? Um, in India, uh, the tribal theologians, we have tribal theologians, right? And what they try to do is that they'll try to look at the pre-Christian animistic beliefs and take out the deities from these beliefs and then try to relate it to Jesus Christ, actually, and try to explain or talk about Jesus Christ through these pre-Christian deities, right? So that is quite uh, interesting about the pre-Christian, uh, I mean, tribal theology in India itself also the expression of Christ from the cultural perspective of, you know, pre-Christian cultural perspective, right? That's uh, that's quite interesting. So I, I think it has been really nice talking with you. And for me as personally, as I'm also working on syncretism, and so I'm also advocating for the word. I think I've I've come across you who have really worked in depth on this very work. So I think any to any listeners, I think you should get a book and then go through it, and then uh, you should see for yourself how syncretism can be used in our academic work and in our daily lives, right? And how it can be understood. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ken, for being here with me and talking about your book. Take care, and thank you very much, yeah.
0: Thanks very much, and all the best in your research. It's been a real pleasure to chat today.